Our second scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, beginning with verse 1. Let us listen for and hear God's holy word. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided to do so that I have decided what to do so that when I'm dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? He answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in their dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in very little is faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Friends, even this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. May your good news come, O Lord, not only in the word spoken, but in and through the power of your Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Amen. Bewildered, baffling, Difficult to read and difficult to preach. Those are just a few of the ways scholars have described this parable. Poses significant theological challenges. The reader is oftentimes left to struggle for meaning just as the preacher struggles to interpret. I admitted to Mark Pace this week that on Monday morning, as I sat in front of my computer preparing to put together this morning's bulletin after reading through this gospel passage, I sat for several moments with my face in my hands wondering, why, oh God, did I pick this scripture all the way back in May when I put together our worship schedule? This may be the toughest parable Jesus ever told, ever. It seems to contradict everything else the Bible wants to teach us. In fact, St. Augustine said, I can't believe that this story came from the lips of our Lord. And Luke, 
who wrote this parable down with his own hand appears to have trouble with it because Luke added those few verses at the end to hope for some clarity. Whoever is faithful and little is also faithful and much, and you can't serve God and wealth and so on. Obviously, something else is going on here. A very, very rich man lives in a big city like Jerusalem or maybe even New York. He lives a life of incredible luxury in a huge apartment overlooking Central Park with butlers and maids and personal assistants. It's all made possible by the income from the estate he owns in the countryside. But because he's in the big city and doesn't spend much time at the country estate, the landowner has hired a manager. The biblical word here is actually a steward. The rich man has hired a steward to run the estate while he parties back in New York. So the steward oversees the work of planting and harvesting that's done by the peasants who live on the land of the country estate. Peasants whose grandparents likely owned the very land at one time but lost it as a payment of debt. Now the peasants work the land as tenant farmers. When they need food and supplies, they have to buy them from the country store, also conveniently owned by the landowner. And they buy these supplies at artificially inflated exorbitant prices with whatever's left over after the exorbitant rent is paid to the landowner. And it's never quite enough. The harvest, is never, the harvest never quite covers the rent, so then what the family needs to live on is bought on credit. So the family is slipping further and further into debt to the landowner, working harder and harder to pay what can never really be paid. The steward whom the landowner, landowner has hired is very likely someone who came from this country community. He knows these people. He grew up with them. He probably even is related to some of them. But somehow, he managed to get the education needed to keep the books and to lose the backbone and the moral fiber to refuse to participate in something so clearly unjust. Ultimately, though, rumors start to spread, which eventually reach the landowner. It turns out that the steward has been squandering the landowner's resources. So the landowner calls the steward to New York and tells him, you're fired. Which means, of course, the steward is now no longer authorized to do anything at all in the master's name. He's lost his job. And the farmers aren't about to take him in either, given that up until now he's allied himself with the landowner by taking a job that involves collecting astronomical rents, gouging the farmers while running the company store, and generally dealing unjustly with the farmers. So what does the steward do? He does something extraordinarily clever. When he gets back home, he gathers all the farmers who own the land, owe the landowner money, and he declares that their debts have been reduced from the rough equivalent of a bazillion dollars to something that maybe 
Just maybe they could repay. Maybe freeing the family to make choices about next steps and their futures. With a few strokes of the pen, a hundred jugs of oil become 50, and a hundred bushels of wheat become 80. Picture trying to change the F on your report card to a B without your parents noticing, and you get the idea. Now, with this shifty maneuvering, we have to keep in mind that the steward hasn't bothered to mention to the farmers that he's been fired, nor that the landowner didn't authorize any of this generosity. The result is that the farmers believe that suddenly the landowner is more generous than anyone else in his position would be. The landowner is now the hero in the farmer's eyes, and by extension, so is the steward. Well, a week or so later, when the landowner comes to town to collect his money, he's greeted by an unbelievable welcome. For miles before he reaches the estate, the streets are lined with cheering farmers. They're shouting his name and waving hand-lettered posters and telling him he's a hero. There are banners hanging from the freeway overpasses, and a few of the restaurant owners have taken those marquee with the flashing arrows and put them right out on the road to announce what a great guy the landowner is. The farmers have never been very discreet about their dislike for the landowner in the past, so this reception takes him completely by surprise. It isn't until he arrives at the estate house that he finds out what the steward has done, and now he has a choice to make. The landowner has two options. He can go outside to the assembled crowd, all the people shouting blessings upon him and his family, and tell them that it was a terrible mistake, that the steward's generosity was an act of crookedness or unrighteousness, depending on your perspective, and none of it will stand up legally when he takes them all to court. And they, will really, and they really do owe him the original amount of debt, and he expects them to pay every dime. The cheering, of course, will quickly turn to, quickly turn to booze, and the landowner is significantly outnumbered. So if he chooses that option, I wouldn't want to be in his shoes. Or the landowner can go outside on the balcony and take in the cheering of the crowd. He can take all the credit for the steward's actions, in which case he'll continue to be in good favor with the farmers, but he'll have to quietly hire the steward back. Mistreat the steward, who was the bearer of such good news, and the crowd might turn on him. Either way, the steward goes from scumbag to hero, and now, when the steward eventually retires, the farmers will gladly take him in, even if the landowner won't. Now, here's the big problem. What the steward does is clearly dishonest. From any legal or moral perspective, he's guilty on all charges. He's taken the landowner's property and squandered it, for which he gets fired. But after he's fired, he then goes and starts wheeling and dealing in the landowner's name with no authority. We call that, at the very least, fraud. Let's just admit that right from the start and get it out of the way. This 
is such an exaggerated story that it's pretty safe to bet that Jesus is not saying, go and do likewise. This does not give us license for embezzlement or larceny or fraud. It's got to be about something else, but the question is, what? Patrick Wilson, a retired Presbyterian minister who now often writes for the Christian Century, suggests that part of our problem with this parable is that we carry around this unspoken theology of God the great bookkeeper. It's a theology that suggests that God sits on a throne in the heavens, pencil poised over a ledger, outlining each of our lives. Each misstep is entered into the debt col- or debit column. Each good deed or act of kindness is recorded as a credit. That accounting, the, that accounting continues until the hour of our death when the entries are totaled and the balance of your life is delivered from on high. The hope, of course, is that the credits will outweigh the debits, but no one can be too sure. It's like Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The book speaks to this very bookkeeping theology. Bad things shouldn't happen to good people, right? If we do wrong, God will punish us. And if we do good, God should, re- should reward us, right? Only Jesus knows that that's not right, or at least that's not how the world works. And in fact, I think Jesus is suggesting that there's something more important than bookkeeping, that maybe God deals with us not on the basis of a ledger sheet, but on the basis of something far more important and far more gracious. As Jesus says in the parable, and his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Even more important than bookkeeping, according to this parable, is shrewd accounting. The master praises the servant for imagination, for cleverness, for discovering a novel way of responding to the crisis at hand. You don't have to like what the steward did or the way he went about doing it, but you have to give him credit for creativity. Faced with disaster, with his pink slip in hand, the steward assesses the situation and immediately moves to do something about it. What would we do faced with that situation? When adversity comes, too often we freeze or we pull the cover over our heads and simply give up. Your boss comes in and tells you that you're the latest victim of downsizing and you decide that your productive years are over. We typically circle the wagons, move into a defensive posture and hunker down. This parable says, That's a miserly way to live. If even dishonest, unscrupulous business people know how to move from defense to offense so quickly, how much more should we? Be clever, Jesus says. Be smart. Be creative. I think what Jesus wants to say is that in this fallen world, in a world in which evil always seems to triumph and the haves are always taking from the have-nots and wars seem inevitable and there's never, ever enough to go around. Creativity 
and imagination are absolutely essential. The parable is a lesson to us about how we ought to live. Luke, though, still doesn't seem, or still seems to think that this parable had something to do with money. He added these verses at the end about how whoever is faithful in the little things is faithful in the big things, and no slave can have two masters, and we can't serve God and wealth. And I think he's right, too, because the way we live our lives is determined by the values we hold and the relationships we form and even the way we use our money. We are not to be anxious about our lives, worried about our bank accounts. You can't serve God and wealth, Luke says. So we need to use wealth to serve God creatively. The steward used all the resources at his disposal to secure his future. We ought to be no less resourceful. Jim Wallace is a Christian activist and co-founder of the Sojourners Movement. A few years ago, he spoke at Duke University, and he talked about the need for churches to be creative about their ministry in the world and drew the comparison to how inner-city gangs ruthlessly defend their turf, how drug lords mark off a neighborhood and make it their own. You can probably imagine how surprised his audience was when he said, I want churches to learn from these gangs. I want some churches who will say, this is our turf. We control the six blocks around our church, and we're going to do what's necessary to turn this neighborhood into the kind of place God wants it to be. He then told a story of one inner city church in Detroit which posted some of their little old ladies on street corners in folding lawn chairs, armed with video cameras. They were supposedly recording every interaction on the street, and overnight, they changed the entire neighborhood because no one wanted to be caught on film buying their next fix. No one who was doing, no matter who was doing the filming, The truth is that those ladies had no idea how to work those cameras, but the drug dealers didn't know that. That's creativity. That's good stewardship of resources. That story reminded me of another story I once heard about a church in Florida that was going through a tough transition. It had once been a great congregation in the heart of its city. But the city changed, the neighborhood declined, and now the congregation mostly commuted in on Sundays from the suburbs. Like many such congregations, they had a problem with the homeless, specifically homeless men getting into the church. The church put locks on the doors, and at night, the men simply broke the locks to get in. The church held a congregational meeting to discuss more security measures, bigger locks, better doors, brighter lights. And in the meeting, one woman spoke up. I'm bothered, she said. I'm bothered by the church locking people out. I'm bothered by the church shutting doors, especially to those in need. Well, what do you want us to do, asked one of the session members. Just throw the doors open and tell them, come on in, help yourself. 
Why not? Asked another voice from the back of the room. Why not? It was one of the oldest members of the congregation. He went on to say, we've been having a tough time attracting folks to this church for a while now. And here are people who are so eager to get in that they're literally breaking down the doors. Let's let them in. I moved the question, someone else shouted. And they took a vote. And it passed. And that night, they left the doors unlocked and wide open. 20 homeless men showed up. There were problems, the pastor said. But gradually, the church did what was necessary to accommodate them. Those men have given us new life, she said. They helped us start acting like the church. In the coming weeks and months ahead, the leaders of this congregation will be making decisions about how we intend to use the resources at our disposal next year. My hope is that you will pray for them. Pray for this church. Pray that we seek out how we will use our wealth to serve God, prayerfully, creatively, and maybe even shrewdly. And to that, I think Jesus says to each of us, go and do likewise. Amen. Oh God, you are holy and deep within ourselves, where our souls touch the ground, where our being meets your being. We find we are on holy ground, and your spirit surrounds us and calls our name. Your holiness is your goodness, your generosity towards us, and the silence which waits and hopes and is glad and is disappointed and waits again. Yet you continue to meet us, to make us holy with your holiness, to make us loving with your love, to make us hopeful with your hope. And so in your presence, we bow our heads, shamed where we have failed others, failed ourselves and failed you. Too often we've allowed our sin and brokenness to cloud the holiness you grant. And so touch us with the tenderness of your forgiveness. Help us embrace your grace, your creativity, your redemption, and in turn breathe out that grace to others. For in your presence we breathe new life. In your presence we dare to be whole, to be holy. We dare to embrace resurrection life through Christ. And so help us to use the new life that you grant us, that resurrection life to disrupt and break apart barriers of unholiness, of hatred, of division or war, of life that is based in violence and death. And so we pray for this world, for your creation, especially those places and peoples that live in terror and fear, and for those who perpetuate terror, violence, and fear. Oh God, you intend us to be free, and so set us free to be your holy and chosen people. 
Set us free to embrace your Holy Spirit, to move and breathe as, and live as those who embrace every moment as those to praise and honor you. Oh God, set us free to be for ourselves a place where sacredness is joy and peace, where justice and mercy rain down, and where we embrace those who need your love most, the sick, the oppressed, the war-torn, the refugee, the homeless, the stranger, and the abandoned. So let us be a sacred space for others. Allow us to use our creativity that you grant us to seek new ways to help each other, to help those in this world who only know brokenness. Empower us, O oh God, to risk and to dare and to embrace our call to be participants with you in creation. We pray for those known to us that need your healing power. We remember Libba Wall. We remember Stuart Warden and family at the death of his son. Oh God, for a few moments, we pray for ourselves and for our own livelihoods. And now we pray that prayer that your son taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.